welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are in the beginnings of a new series titled, The Study of the Book of 2 Timothy. Class teacher Doug Brady brings these lessons to help us in our Christian life. This is the second lesson in this series, which is titled, Paul's Initial Message to Timothy, taken from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Here we are getting to know Timothy and begin to understand the teaching coming from the Apostle Paul, who is in his final days on this earth. You will certainly want to have your Bible open to 2 Timothy as we delve into this lesson. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We have many visitors to our class each week, and we welcome meeting you when you are in the area. Well, I see Doug is at the podium, ready to begin the lesson, so here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. Now, if you remember last time, when we met, we went through 10 questions about this book of 2 Timothy and that Paul wrote it. It was the last of the Pauline epistles. He wrote it about 67 AD. You know, I learned an interesting fact here. Did you know in 67 AD who was the uh, emperor? Nero. That's exactly right. What is Nero most known for about Rome? Fiddling around. Fiddling around, yes. While... It burned. Who did, he claim, who did he blame the burning on? Christians. Now, most of you don't know the site of the major burn in Rome. I was just told by someone the major site. Because shortly after 67 AD and that fire, three Roman legions led by Titus went where? To Israel and attacked, and they laid siege to the Temple Mount, and they recovered from Jerusalem and the Temple Mount a great amount of booty. And they brought all those plunder back to Rome. And you know what they built with that plunder? That's exactly right, the Colosseum. Jews built the Colosseum, or at least financed it. Not willingly, but it's amazing how those kind of things work in a devilish sort of way. Now, that was 67 AD. Paul, when he wrote this, was in a dungeon in Rome. He was going to be killed. Who can tell me what tradition says is the manner in which he was killed? I, there are several, some, some traditions or some scholars think it's beheading. Others think he was forced to drink molten lead. I tend to think the second one because that's more Roman. Just beheading too quick. You know, they loved to burn people at the stake and they loved to crucify people. Those methods of death are not quick. 
They didn't crucify Paul because of the fiasco, that public relations fiasco after they crucified Peter upside down. So I want you to think about that. He was there. Now, what is most important, I think, is for us to remember the primary message of this book because Timothy, put it bluntly, is thinking about chickening out. Now, that was the word I used when I was growing up, chickened out. Timothy was thinking about going south. What was this message in this last? Quit spinning it. Okay. (laughs) Seek the steadfast endurance of genuine faith. Finish strong. Do not quit under any circumstances. And we're going to be talking about that all the time. But to start with, I want us to look at uh, this passage, and we will start in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Seems like a very good place to start. But before we read God's word, let's pray. Father, I pray that you will speak to us today. You will have your Holy Spirit move in our hearts. And I pray, Father, that we will be filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit will teach us today and teach me, and that we will realize the importance of the things being said, which seem to just be introductory matters that aren't that really important, and yet, Father, help us to understand what is being communicated here. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. That's his salutation, and that's the things he said. We've talked about being a, an apostle and uh, how you, you do that. You notice, I, I did a little research this week. Paulus, which was his Roman name, was a very common name uh, to use in favored name in the Sicilian area. Does anybody know what the word, Tim, the name Timothy means? To honor and God. Honor and God. How do you think he got that name? Lois and Eunice, I'm certain, gave him that name. Well, we'll talk about them in just a second. This word apostle that Paul is claiming literally means one who is sent. Sent off on a commission to do something as one's personal representative with credentials furnished. That is, they were given the authority, the credentials, and they would go off and they would perform, hopefully, this representative task they've been assigned, they've been commissioned. What were Paul's representative or appropriate credentials of authority? What was his authorities? Uh, What was his credentials that he could show? How long have you been lame? Stand up right now. And the guy would start dancing. He would heal sick. He would cast demons out of people. Uh, He would write scripture. He would make prophecies. He would do all of these things that the gift of apostleship comes with. That's why there are no more gifts of apostleship. But Paul had that gift, and he exercised it to show his credentials. I mean, you think about this. If in 67 A.D., You were to come up to someone and you were to say, well, did you know that God so loved the world that whoever, uh, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life? Well, how do you know that? Well, I've heard. What's your authority to be able to tell me that? You didn't have any. John hadn't been written yet, the gospel of John. See? 
But the apostles could speak with authority because they could prove it by God working miraculous events through them. And so those were their credentials. Now, I want you to notice something else here about Paul that he's saying. He speaks of his call to apostleship based on the will of God. Now, think about this a second. Who made the decision that Paul would be an apostle? You're exactly right, Jesus. The Lord God made that decision. In fact, that's why he says, according to the commandment of our God in 1 Timothy 1.1. If you look there, he says, an apostle, Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise. In 1 Timothy 1.1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Who made that decision? God did. Does God have a plan for your life? Does he have a purpose for your life? The answer is yes. Of course, what's the next question? What is it? If you don't know, why don't you know? Have you asked? Have you searched? Have you said, Lord, I want to know what your purpose is for me. Tell me. Now, when I want you to look at something with me just a second. I want you to look at Paul's justification moment. What does the justification moment mean? The moment that you're saved, the moment you're justified. That was on a road to Damascus, and I want you to see it. We're going to look at Acts 9, starting in verse 3. As as Paul was traveling, it happened as he was approaching Damascus that suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, let's stop there a second. There are people who have said to me, who I have shared the gospel with, they said, well, if I had an experience like Paul had, I would receive Jesus as my Savior. But I haven't had anything like that. What do you say to somebody like that? Oh, you want that kind of experience? There's some things that come with it afterwards, being stoned, being beaten, being uh, martyred. Those things you want, or would you like to just do it the easy way? (laughs) In Muslim countries, that's what you can expect. Exactly right. Now look at verse 6. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And they led him by the hand, and they brought him to Damascus. Did you notice in there a calling as apostle? And the answer is no. It's not in there. Why? Because it didn't happen then. He had to win him. He had to be saved first, justified. Once he's that point, where did he go to learn about what he had just done? To Mount Horeb. I believe then was the decision made to call him as apostle at the end of the three-year study he did with Jesus at Mount Horeb. Now, some people have said to me when I said, how can he survive for three years in Mount Horeb in the middle of that desert? Well, how did the 2.5 million Israelites survive for a year at Mount Horeb in the middle of that desert? When you're with God, he takes care of all that. Now... So that's the first thing I want you to see. He, he received that command there in Mount Horeb, and he was called. Now, let's go back and look at 1 Timothy 
I mean, 2 Timothy 1, uh, 1 again. There is by the will of God, according to the promise of life. What in the world does that mean? He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life. Let me tell you, that phrase is so pregnant with meaning that we need to stop here and we need to look. Chris, have you ever heard the phrase, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life? In fact, have you ever uttered that phrase before? Yes. Is it true that God loves us and he has a wonderful plan for our life? Is it also true that Satan hates you and has a horrible plan for your life? He does first part of his plan, to do whatever is necessary to stop you from becoming a believer. Some of us in this room, he was successful longer than others. But that's the first part. If he fails there, he's going to do everything he can to ruin your life. However, is there someone who has built a hedge around you? But we need to understand God's plan versus Satan's plan. John talked about it. In John 10, 10. So let's look at John 10, 10 just a second here. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. Now, this is Jesus speaking. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. What is God's plan for us? That's number one, you have life, that's salvation, and that you have it abundantly. Now, if Chris and I, either one of us were sharing the four spiritual laws, we would say, why is it? Do, do, do you see people around you? Is everybody experiencing abundant life? Well, no. Why not? And then we tell them it's because of law too that you are separated from God from your sin. And we explain sin. Now, the thing that I want you to see here is he wants abundant life for everybody. That doesn't mean when you die... That means right now. He wants that for you. Who doesn't want that from you? Now, understand also that verse talks about Satan's plan for your life. He wants to come and he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Shouldn't destroy be before kill? No, it should not. First of all, Talk, let's talk about stealing. Do you remember the parable of the four soils that Jesus told? And how some seed would be there and birds would come and steal it away before it could have a chance to germinate. That's the stealing. He wants to steal God's plan of salvation away from you so you cannot understand it, you can't grasp it, or you don't receive it. That's what he wants to do, number one. If not, he wants to kill you. Wait, now that's just a quick jump. Number one, from not hearing, he wants to kill you. Because if he kills you, will you be able to ever receive the plan of salvation? No. He wants to kill you. Well, if he's killed me, what has he got left to destroy? Your legacy. And what you're going to be able to have passed on to future generations. To use this as an example in my life. What he would have wished when my mother was sitting at that table explaining to that neighborhood child the plan of salvation, he would have wanted me to get up and say, I'm going to go outside. 
She wouldn't have said anything. Probably say that's better because now I can just share with this guy alone. She had no idea that I was going to listen and receive Christ at that moment. The next thing he would want to do, he would want to kill me and anything that I had that had to do with spirituality. And finally, destroy any legacy I could have. Eliminate, if he kills me, you see, he eliminates a missionary that was supposed to go to Korea. And in fact, is over there right now. He would eliminate a potential missionary to Japan. He would eliminate the two beautiful little girls that are being raised before they go. He would have eliminated the chance that I would have had to join in Julie's family. The chance that I would have had to try and have an effect on Julie's nieces and nephews. All of that he wants to destroy. That's his plan. The question is, there are two persons seeking to stand in opposition to that, hopefully. The first one of those persons is the Holy Spirit. He is the restrainer. The second one is you. What choices will you make? Timothy is considering making the wrong choice and allowing Satan to kill his ministry and destroy his legacy. What decision will he make? Now, that's just verse 1. Let's go on. I'm going to bypass uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 18 and 19 for now. You can look at it in your notes. It talks about what life is planned for you as a believer. Now, 2 Timothy 1-2. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, notice how Paul can say, my beloved son, because he was the one who won him to the Lord. He's talking about this relationship. If you look in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and as a disciple was there, named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Now, notice that contrast. It appears to me that his father was not a believer. Now, what was his mother and grandmother believer in? They were devout Jewish people at the time. What Bible or scripture did they have? The Old Testament. They didn't have, during that first missionary journey, Paul hadn't even written a letter yet. Galatians was still to come. They didn't have access to any of these other uh, New Testament books, most of which were not written. But they were devout, and they studied the scriptures, and they knew that a Messiah was coming. Now, you need to hold that thought. We're going to get more on that in just a minute. But as I was looking at this, I looked at that greeting, or you could call it a blessing, that grace, mercy, and peace, right? Is that not what it says? Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. Now, we need to talk about that just a second. You think, well, that's just fluff, Doug. And, you know, they talked that way then. If you were turned to one book over, Titus, don't do it yet. Don't, you're not going to need to do it. But if you were to do that, and you look at the beginning of the, the, the letter to Titus, grace and peace. If you turn back to 2 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians, both those books written to those churches, grace and peace. Colossians, grace and peace. Philippians, grace and peace. Ephesus, 
the church at which Timothy is being the pastor. Grace and peace. The same thing for Galatians, same thing for First and Second Corinthians, same thing for Romans. So why here does he insert mercy? You have a pastor who is young, who is fragile physically, and he has been failing. Paul, why should I continue? I'm a failure. You ever felt like you were a failure? Yeah, Paul did. I don't want to tell you when I felt like I was a failure. We'd be here too long. But the fact is, Satan does that. Discouragement is his most well-used weapon. He's saying, God has provided you, Timothy, with not just his grace, which he's going to talk about extensively in this book, but his mercy. That is his forgiveness of you. He is not going to hold you accountable. Instead, he is going to redeem you and rebuild you and resharpen you, just like he did with Elijah. And I'm going to provide you peace. So you won't be worried about it anymore. You won't be concerned about what has happened in the past anymore. This is my plan for you. Let's talk about these three things very, very quickly if we can. First is grace. What is grace? Grace is unearned, unearned and undeserved favor that the Father gives to His children. He relates to us only through grace. That's the way it started. For by grace we are saved by means of our faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. The Lord does that. He blesses us with the riches of heaven through His grace. The power that we're going to memorize about in 2 Timothy 1.7 it comes to us through His grace. His grace is the means of power. No, grace is just a concept. No, it's not. If you think it's just a concept, you are cheating yourself. Cheating yourself. And you need to understand that. Look, for example, at 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Yet I have shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, Paul says. And the grace of our Lord was more abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. This grace is what's bringing him back, he said, when he was being shown mercy. Look even a more specific time when Paul is talking about it. And he said to me, that is the Lord God, said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Now you need to understand the import of what he is saying there. He's saying, Grace is what brings you my power, but it comes to those who are weak. Why? Why not give it to the strong? Because the world is much more astounded when someone is, who is weak is all of a sudden become strong. How is that possible? That's, that's what I want. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I would rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Now, a verse we're going to get to when we get to the start of the second chapter of 2 Timothy 2.1. It says, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Where does the strength come from? Christ Jesus, the strength. That's what he wants. Grace is much more than just an introduction to God. It is the means for being a courageous believer. Grace. Now the mercy. Mercy is withholding the consequences of our sin that we deserve. The consequences that separate us from the love of God. Now, 
Have you ever heard anyone saying, no justice, no peace? Have you ever heard that? It sounds to me, when I hear them saying that in the context, they don't really want justice. They want what they want. But you know, it would be interesting to be able to separate one of those people out who's chanting that and say, you really want justice? Yes, I do. You want justice for you? Justice for you means you should burn in hell forever. Justice for me means I should burn in hell forever. God showed me mercy. And that's what you want too, isn't it? And so let's see what justice really shows for this event. But be that as it may, God is long-suffering. That's what his justice is about. He delays consequences to us, giving us time to turn back to him. Look at the statement he made in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but it is, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You say, why is God delaying coming back for us so soon, so long? It is time we want you to come back. Well, yeah, I would say I do. Please, come back today. What about the person who, if he didn't come back today, would be saved tomorrow? I think they'd feel about it. God knows who's going to be saved and when, and we need to understand that. Finally, peace. Now, I want you to understand, grace is an action. Mercy is a decision. Peace, on the other hand, is a state of mind and heart, which he promises to us. A state of mind and a heart, you see, which we experience when we are confident or convinced of God's grace and mercy. Peace flourishes in our hearts when we come to know experientially that God's grace will sustain us no matter what happens. God's grace will sustain us, even if the circumstances are extremely difficult. Paul, face extreme circumstances? Yep. Did Timothy faced extreme circumstances. Yes, that's why he's telling them about this. You need to understand, I don't want you to be concerned. I don't want you to be worried. I don't want anxiety to rack your life. What did Jesus say about this? In John 14, 27, he made it very clear. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. That's what Timothy needs to hear. Understand this. Does the world, can the world provide peace? Yes, on a circumstantial level. They can have the circumstances around you tranquil. Can the world provide you peace where you need it in your heart? No. Only God can do that. That's the promise here that he's telling him about. In fact, one of my favorite verses on peace you'll find in Philippians 4.7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Focus for a second on that which surpasses all comprehension. What is that saying? You can't understand it. You don't understand how it works. But you will experience how it works if you give God the chance. That's what he's trying to say to us. Experience my peace then you will know my reality. But to do that, grace and mercy come first. We have to understand those and experience them first. Then we can experience God's peace.
And that's why he puts it in that order. Now, let's go back. Is Timothy in need of mercy along with grace and peace? Yes, he is experiencing failure, defeat, and loneliness. Now, I want you to think about it a second. I imagine, I, I imagine there's not anybody in this room who would hold up their hand saying, I've never experienced failure before. I want you to think about that a second. Is there anyone in here who hasn't experienced defeat? You know, even Doug, even good lawyers, they don't win every case, do they? No, they don't. Part, most of the time for me, that's because the judges are kind of dumb. But <laughs> no, but the fact is, the fact is, when you really experience a failure that's gut-wrenching, you know, lawyers and Dewey's experienced this sometimes, I imagine. All of us seem to have. Sometimes you have a case where the business is on the line. The business they spent 20 years building it's going to be destroyed if they lose. And if you lose for them, you're responsible for that business being lost in a way. You think it is a personal failure. And you hate it. And when you feel that failure and that defeat, you tend to be, feel all alone. And loneliness sets in. And what he's trying to show Timothy is there are solutions for that. There may be a defeat. There may be a failure. There doesn't need to be loneliness. Why? He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Doesn't matter how long this goes, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you forever because you are mine. Which leads in now to what he's going to do. He's got this man, this young man, who's experiencing defeat and failure. What is he going to do? What's the first thing he's going to tell him? I'm telling about, I'm thankful. Well, wait a second. I'm having these troubles over here. What are you thankful for? Well, let's see what he says I'm thankful for. I thank God with whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you. I'm thankful for you, Timothy. I'm thankful for you in my prayers night and day. Well, let's stop there a second and let's consider this. Clear conscience. You know, if your conscience is not clear... It's really hard to be courageous. It's really hard to stand up for what you, your position, if your conscience is not clear. Paul is saying, mine is now. Was there a time when it wasn't? Yes. When he was persecuting God's, he knew something was wrong. He, but he just couldn't understand it until he had that conversation with Jesus on the road. Now things have changed. And he's saying, just like my forefathers. Does he just mean his family? No, he's talking about people like Abraham and David. And Elijah, did Elijah fail miserably? Yes. But did God bring him back? Yes. Did he show him mercy, provide him grace once again, and a peace in his heart? Yes, he did. And so he's saying that about him. I have a clear conscience of my, same as my forefathers. And I am constantly remember you in prayers day and night. Now, it's interesting. In the ancient Near East, they had a figure of speech called a mirrorism, a mirrorism. Anybody, uh, that won't be in your notes, it's spelled a M-E-R-I-S-M, a mirrorism. Does anybody know what a mirrorism is? A mirrorism is, instead of saying, I searched everywhere, you ever heard the expression, I searched high and low. That didn't mean you only searched 
high and you only searched in the low place, you searched everything in between. That's what a mirrorism is. Here, Paul is using this mirrorism to say, I pray for you, I remember you in my prayers night and day. So does that mean he only prays in the night and he only prays in the first of the day? No, he all the time in between he's praying for Timothy. Now I want you to think about that just a second. What if Paul were to be able to come and pay a personal visit to you? And he was to say to you, Frank, Frank, I want you to know, I'm up there in heaven, but I am praying specifically for you night and day. Would that not be awesome? Can you think of anybody other than the Holy Spirit who you would want praying for you? Now, why do you say that, Doug, like that? Have you ever really studied Paul's prayers? Let me tell you, this is not in your notes, but you might want to write down Ephesians 1, 15 through 19. That's one of his prayers that he prayed for that church and for you. Uh, my favorite one is in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. You might want to write that down. Those are prayers that Paul has made for the church at Ephesus, those people there, and for us, the readers of that, of that letter. I think Jesus is, well, he's all, for me, he's up there defending me from Satan's attack because I've given Satan so much material to go to the Father with. And, but, yes? When I went to Dallas, I was at this friend's house, and my name was on the blackboard in her office. And I said, is that me, Kathy? And she goes, yeah. I said, why is my name up there? Because I've been praying for you for over 10 years, Kathy. That's pretty cool. So I'm constantly remembering you in my prayers day and night. And longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. What is, what is that about? Who, who was crying? Who in that passage was crying? What does it say? I remember you in my prayers I, as I recall your tears. Timothy. Well, what was the event? What was Timothy doing? He was accompanying Paul everywhere he went. Paul had a cadre of companions. He and Luke, Titus and others. And then what did they come and do to Paul? Arrested him. Took him off to Rome. You know, if we fast forward five years in our nation and the Lord hasn't come back you could see those doors bust open and come in and they're arresting me because I'm teaching things that are illegal now to teach things I'm teaching now I think will become illegal pretty soon in our nation Hope, hopefully you wouldn't say man good riddance to bad rubbish get rid of that guy that I know at least one person in here who would cry for me and that was Julie but you think about that. That's what's happened to Paul. Timothy saw it. He saw him put him in chains and dragging him away. And he says, your tears gave me joy. And I recall that. And that's one of the reasons I thank God for, for that, for you. So what is the next thing he's saying in this verse? For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Now, did his mother and his grandmother lead him to the Lord? No, Paul did. What did they have to do with it, though? They laid the foundation. They gave him the scriptures. He learned it. He trained it. He saw it in their lives. Now, 
In our society today, this isn't always possible. And, you know, things like this happen. Sometimes a mother has to raise a child on her own, and she has to work to support that family. Sometimes the father has to raise a child on his own, or children on his own, and he has to work to support that family. Sometimes there's choices made that the family wants a double income. But I know women who have made the choice that the most important thing I can do for God and for my husband is to build godliness into my children. And they make that choice, and they stay dedicated to it, and that's exactly the example of Eunice and Lois here, working together as a team, grandmother and mother. And in doing that, they built this wonderful man, Timothy. Does that mean their son won't have any problems? Yeah, he's having a problem right now. That's why this book is being written to him. But Timothy is going to become a mighty man of God. He is going to carry the Christian faith on to the next generation. Now, some people say, well, you're just saying that. You know, of course it's going to go on to the next generation. How do you know that? How do you know that's going to happen? Is there any time when it hasn't happened? Actually, there is. You might want to jot down. I know you hate it when God tells me things the night before I teach. But in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, who was the greatest leader that the nation of Israel ever had? Moses. There was no one like Moses. Did Moses want to make certain that someone would follow after him and, and lead the people the same way he did? Yes, and he built into that man, Joshua, and Moses, and then Joshua. How could you have somebody like Moses building into you and making you the kind of man you became, and you not do that with someone else? But Joshua failed to do that. And what does it say? In Judges 2.10, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That is Joshua's generation. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work that he had done for Israel. Isn't that sad? Could that happen in a community in our nation? I heard a story this week uh, about a little girl whose parents were very godly, and they trained her well, but she had a friend in the neighborhood who came and they would play, and she was in their house one time, and the parents overheard this. Their daughter started talking about God, and the first thing that other little girl said is, what is God? Can you imagine that? What is God? She'd never heard of God. That's happening in our country. Now, remember, this is a question asked to you by a lawyer. I don't normally warn people I'm deposing, but has our nation thrown religion out of our schools? Answer is no. We have the religion of humanism now. See, that's not a religion. Oh, the humanist society has a 501c3 designation, religious designation, tax-free. It is. It is the religion. It's the love of self. The praise of human beings being the highest order of anything. And it is rampant in our schools. They don't teach Christianity. They teach humanism. And that's where our nation is sadly going and why we need to be praying. So 
As we look at this passage, Paul believes that Timothy has a glaring weakness, and it's a deficiency of moral courage. And he wants to deal with that, and that's what this book is going to be about. He's going to say, I saw this sincere faith in you, but it's the start of a faithful endurance. And so we need to look at these things, and we need to come to understand these things as, as we see what is going on here. Now... As we finish today, because I'm afraid I'm running out of time, Paul was convinced that Timothy's genuine faith would see him through, in spite of all the attacks he was facing. A few final thoughts I want to give you. I want you to remember, Paul had worked very closely together with Timothy. They'd traveled together. Paul won Timothy to the Lord in his first missionary journey. Timothy had become a ministry partner of Paul's on both his second and his third missionary journeys. Paul believes in Timothy. You're going to see he received a very special gift. Paul believes in Timothy. Is it good to have someone who believes in you? How are you going to know that there is someone who believes in you? They got to tell you. If they don't tell you, you won't know. Isn't that true? If you believe in somebody, shouldn't you be telling them and encouraging them? And someone just came up to me today and he said, Doug, I want you to know, and it was implied that what you're doing is important. Therefore, I am praying for you all the time. I, he, I don't know if he knew that this was going to be in this lesson or not, but he, God directed him to come up and tell me that. And it is important to know that someone, you see, that's one of the things that I wanted to know before I asked Julie to marry me. Number one, would she stand with me no matter what? And I came to learn that she would. And I said, that's the kind of woman I want to be married to. And also, that's the kind of woman I want to know that I stand by her no matter what. And that's the way it should be. And so, I want you to see that. I also want you to see, though, something that's important, I think. And that's how Paul designed this man. You say, well, Paul didn't. Yes, Paul had a plan. And for teaching people like Timothy, like Titus, like Philemon and Onesimus, first and foremost in that plan is to attract and equip people. He's about attracting and equipping people. Paul would gather listeners together, and then he would teach them. And when Paul entered a town, he would begin a new teaching ministry. And he was always about equipping, equipping as many people as possible. That was his first step. His second step was to find and mentor leaders. Find and mentor emerging leaders. So, that's number two for Paul. Paul believed in the concept of follow-up. He wouldn't just share the Lord with somebody and move on. He would follow up. He would plan his subsequent missionary journeys in such a way that he could visit the churches that he had planted and the church leaders that he had established there. In fact, if you look in, as an example of that in Acts 15.36, where he said, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. That was his plan. And I want you to, to see how that was working. Now, what's number three? Create new organizations. I want you to think about this a second. When Paul was having his missionary journey, how long had there been churches? 
Did he say to them, well, you've now received Christ. You need to join the first church of Jerusalem. No. He said, let's build a church right here in Ephesus. Or let's build a church right here in Philippi. Or Colossae. Or uh, in Galatia. That's what he was about doing. And he did that. He set up and created these new organizations so that they could thrive right there where people lived. He didn't want to hoard the leaders he developed. He trained leadership to extend his own influence. He would plant churches and then put one of his trainees in charge like he did with Timothy at Ephesus or Titus in Cyprus or Crete, I mean. And he would, he would do these things to, in charge of this new church. And he made sure that he always had a leader for every church in need. That was what Paul was about in his program. And, and then he would engage in ongoing development of these leaders. He believed in the concept of follow-up. And he would plan his journeys to do that. Now, one other thing that I want you to remember before we finish today, and I know I'm going a little long, and I apologize. But remember when Paul told Timothy that he was praying for him? Remember that? He said he offered those prayers night and day. Let's remember for a moment the effect that a person has in spending time with God. When he comes to learn to pray properly, he understands prayer is not designed to change God, but to change him or her. Prayer takes us into the presence of Almighty God. It helps us to see our sin. I mean, when Isaiah was brought into, in chapter 6, I think it was, into the presence of God, what's the first thing he talked about or remarked of? Oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips who live among men who have unclean lips. It allows us to become acquainted with his will, and it prepares us to obey him. Spending time in the presence of God. We've got to do that. Secondly, God uses our times of prayer to soften our hearts and to change our focus. You know, as you pray for others, the Holy Spirit will work in your heart so that you will develop the same compassion for them that God has as you pray for others. You know, in Romans chapter 8, verse 27, it says this, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, one final thing about this kind of prayer. You cannot intimately expose your heart to God and be exposed to God's heart and remain complacent. What will he do? You know, I want you to think about this before we finish because this is, this is a very, in Isaiah 6 where we talked about Isaiah being there. He, he shows up, he's pulled up into the throne room of God in the year of King Uzziah's death. And he talks about the seraphim and how they're saying they're holy and holy. And then he says, woe me, I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And I've seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim 
flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he'd taken, and he touched my mouth, and behold, he has touched my lips, and my iniquity is taken away, and my sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, now, I want you to see this, because this is very, very important. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, what does the then mean? At that point, he heard it. Well, was that because God just said it then? No. As he was saying, this is a tense that starts in the past and goes on into the future. What is it saying there then? Isaiah couldn't hear his voice. Why? Sin. Sin prevented him from hearing. Once the sin was cleansed, he could then hear. And what did he hear God saying? Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. Isaiah was not complacent. He got close to God's heart. He could then hear what God was saying. And he said, okay, me. Did God have to say to him, Isaiah, what about you? No. Isaiah volunteered, me. Send me now. I'm ready to go. That's what happens when we get into the presence of God and allow him to work on us just like that. That's why Paul was so great. He spent so much time in the presence of God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend here together. I thank you for loving us the way that you do. I thank you, most of all, that you show mercy to us. We certainly don't deserve it because we have been complacent. I pray, Father, now that we will recognize the power of prayer and that we will be willing to spend an hour a week praying for our nation, praying for people be saved, praying that you turn it around, pray that you bring holiness back and morality to our country, that you heal our land from this wicked disease of sin that is so rampant everywhere. Father, help us not to lose heart. Help us not to give up or quit. Help us to stay warriors for you. Soldiers who want to please the one who has enlisted them as a soldier. Help us not to fear. And recognize that you haven't given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of discipline. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.